Hi, I'm Katie. And I'm Martha. And this is Tales from the Archives, a bi-weekly podcast where we discuss the strange and true stories that make up our past. Join us every other week as we talk about the weirder side of history, digging up tales that are so odd they could only be true. If you would like to follow us, you can find us on Twitter with the handle Tales Archives and Instagram at Tales from the Archives. Links in the show notes. Have a great story you would like us to cover? Send us an email at talesfromthearchivespod at gmail.com. So stay tuned as we bring you some of our favorite Tales from the Archives. And without further ado, here's our first episode. Hi, I'm Katie. And I'm Martha, and this is Tales from the Archives. So a little bit about us. Obviously, we're both North American expats, but we live and work in London. Um, I'm Canadian, and Martha is from the States. Um, I won't hold that against you. (laughs) (laughs) So I work in arts education, and I love Victoriana and classical music, especially opera. And I work in heritage, and I love everything Tudor and medical history, and will pet any and every dog I see. (laughs) Yes. So you'll get to know more about us with each and every episode, but for now, let's get started. I'm going to go first. So I thought I'd start with a historical crime today. Um, Mm. Yeah. So I'm going to go into the case of the Camden Town murder or that of Emily Dimmock in 1907. Okay. Do you know this one? No, I've never heard of this one. It's a good one because it, it happens, well, obviously it's like 10 years or almost 10 years after um, the Jack the Ripper murders. So okay. there was still, yeah, things were still kind of like hot and they're still discussing. Well, anyway, we'll see. <laughs> there are lots of conspiracy theories. Um, so to begin, Emily Dimmock was born in 1884 in Standon, Hertfordshire, to a photographer and his wife, William and Sarah, both from London. Emily left home at a young age to begin working as a maid in Barnet and eventually made her way to London, specifically around the Euston King's Cross area. She unfortunately found herself drawn to the vocation of a, you guessed it, prostitute. Lady of the night. (laughs) Of course. Um, Which is surprising considering the rest of her family seemed to have very reputable working class lives. Hmm. Yeah, because she was the daughter of a photographer. Maybe she was just bored with her easy life. Yes. Definitely. By 1905, at age 21, she was living at a lodging near Euston on Bidborough Street, run by a man named John William Crabtree, who was a small-time crook and petty thief. Obviously, that's how you get sucked in. Um, (laughs) Who had brief stints in prison, which is nice. He did, however, know the comings and goings of Emily's friends, to say loosely, which would come in handy later on, so... Obviously, more on this a bit later. At some point in 1907, Emily met a young man by the name of Bertram Shaw, with whom she had entered into a common-law marriage. He reportedly had asked her to give up her life of prostitution, to live with him and be his wife, which is very sweet in a turn-of-the-century musical sort of way, I think. Bertram was a chef on the Midland Railway and worked the overnight shift, traveling to Derby in the afternoon and then back to London, and would return around noon the following day at the end of his shifts. He was also only 19, and Emily at this point was 23, so obviously scandalous that she was an older woman. (laughs) Why not? Yeah. 
The couple moved to a rooming house run by a Mrs. Stocks on St. Paul's Road, now Agar Grove, in Camden, which was convenient for Bertram to commute to work, but the area was also a hotbed of prostitution and vice, obviously. Um, so this was not a good temptation for poor Emily, especially with her husband working overnight shifts and long hours. Oh, and by the way, when they entered into their partnership, Emily at some point changed her name to Phyllis. Why? Why? I don't know. <laughs> so random. <laughs> but was also known to the colleagues of Bertram under this name. So she was both Emily mm. and Phyllis. Why? Who knows? Um, so Phyllis slash Emily and Bertram lived there for some time until September 1907 when things turned for the worst. During one of Bert's overnight trips on the 6th of September at the Eagle Pub in Camden, Emily went with a Robert Wood, one of her devoted followers. He was an engraver and artist. He brought with him a postcard which read, Phyllis Darling, if it pleases you to meet me at 8.15 at the, and then there's a rising sun, so there's like a picture that he drew kind of for effect. Okay. Instead of writing rising sun, he just drew a rising sun. And this was like a popular pub in Camden, so she would have known exactly where to meet where to him. Go, yeah. yeah. Then he signed it, yours to a cinder, Alice. So quite the salutation. I know. To a cinder. Yeah. Oh. So he signed this postcard, Alice, um, as to not cause any suspicions from the unsuspecting Bertram. And so, like, even his, like, Bertram's name sounds very uptight, I think. Yeah. Definitely don't hear it anymore. No. Maybe that's for <laughs> a good that's reason. So the postcard was posted, for whatever reason, on the morning of the 9th of September. Bert was still working on overnight shifts at this point. In his time away, Emily met with a ship's cook named Robert Percival Roberts, whoa, with whom she had been in contact with for a few nights prior to this, and who had been planning to meet her again on the 11th of September. But she was seen with none other than Robert Wood again at the Eagle Pub. So this was apparently the last time she was seen alive. Dun, dun, dun. The following morning, Bert was due to return from Derby, and his mother had decided to visit the couple which is obviously great timing. <laughs> I think that's like a mother-in-law's, like... Always have the worst timing. Yeah. Always the worst. <laughs> or the best to catch you in an unsuspecting Unsavory. moment. <laughs> <laughs> she arrived before he had returned from his shift, so she made her way to the house and could not get an answer from ringing the bell. Mrs. Stocks, the landlady, let her wait in the passageway for Bert to arrive home. When he did, he had to borrow a key from Mrs. Stocks to be let into the flat. What awaited them was sheer terror. Emily's naked, bloody body lay on the bed, throat slit so deep that she was almost decapitated. God. I know, which is obviously very similar to the, the Jack the Ripper murders. murders. Yeah. There was blood all around the room and evidence that the killer had washed their hands in the wash basin. I know! Wow. Uh, the murder weapon was also never found, but there were two of Bert's razors also found in the wash basin. The only slight relief is that there were no signs of struggle, so it's assumed that this happened while Emily was asleep and was caught unawares. Must be the worst way to to, to go is just to wake up and I know utter panic. Oh, to wake up and horrible. I know. The room had also been completely ransacked, and drawers had been flung open, the curtains torn down, and very interestingly, her book of collected postcards was open, many of which had been torn out and thrown around the room. 
So maybe it was someone she knew. Yeah. Very angry about that postcard. I know. During a cleanup of the rooms, Bert found the postcard from Robert Wood in one of Emily's drawers, which was given to the press. It was running countless publications on the 29th of September with a 100 pound reward for anyone who might recognize the handwriting. Sure enough, it was recognized by a young woman named Ruby Young, who said her profession was an artist's model, although it was fairly certain that she was in the same trade as Emily. Mm. She knew the handwriting well as that of Robert Wood, with whom she also had an acquaintance. It's an interesting, it's um, also the way that they caught Dick Turpin. Yes. Was by his handwriting. His old school teacher had recognized it and how they caught him and that was the end yeah of dt <laughs> <laughs> didn't they keep him in a pub in york um there like is sit, sitting in the cellar for a while i don't know i don't know i did um edward and i went to york yeah and we um went into the cell that he was kept in in the prison yes and it was really they had this whole like story thing going on on the projector on the wall. Yeah. yeah it was crazy but no. it was not a big sell either. So no, there's imagine some re- how uncomfortable it would be. Yeah, and there's some really good ghost stories surrounding him, and like you can hear him riding through passageways at night and yeah. stuff in New York. York was very full of. We went on a ghost tour and everything. Yes, I did. Me. So fun. <laughs> Go to York if you have a chance. Yes, I was so scared though. There's so many good ghost stories, but I was like, I don't want to walk down the street. <laughs> Anyway, yes, back, back to London. Back to, London. Back to Camden. <laughs> um, I'm just going to go back. Okay. So Ruby Young um, confronted Robert, and he told her that he had met Phyllis in the Rising Sun and that she had asked him to buy her a postcard. He instead offered that one, which was in his pocket to her, and she requested he send it to her again and sign it, Alice. Why? I don't know, but this is his story. Yeah, Mm. Um, Ruby somehow believed the story and didn't contact the police. It's a terrible story. I know. So Robert was also able to convince two other witnesses to keep silent. His foreman, Mr. Tinkham, who knew the writing, and also one of his friends, Joseph Lambert, who had seen Robert with a girl in the pub, recognizably a prostitute, um, on the night of the murders. It was later revealed that Robert Wood implored the two men to hide the fact that he was in conversation with a woman at the pub that night. So I don't know if you want to piece piece (laughs) things together. However, of course, someone did come forward. A friend of Emily Dimmick's, a woman named Emily Lawrence. She gave a perfect description of the man that Phyllis was seen with, about 30 years old, 5 foot 8, and a long, thin, blotchy face and sunken eyes, a man of good education and of shabby, genteel appearance. Sounds attractive. Um, she, this, this is great. She also kept calling him that bastard for reasons unknown. Mm. <laughs> she was not the only one who offered this advice, as more sources came forward to describe a man by the same description, a spitting portrayal of Robert Wood. Ruby Young confided her information to a friend, who then went on to tell one of her clients, who ended up being a journalist for the Weekly Dispatch newspaper. He planned a meeting with Ruby discreetly at Piccadilly Station, but what he did not tell her was the fact that he was bringing Inspector Arthur Neal of Scotland Yard with him. 
Sneaky. I know, very, very sneaky. sneaky. Um, <laughs> she finally agreed to tell her side of the story and that Robert Wood had told her that if the police tried to get information from her to give them an alibi of his whereabouts on the night of the murder, which is just lovely. Robert Wood was, unsurprisingly, arrested on the 4th of October, 1907, and escorted to Brixton Prison. But this is also quite interesting in trying to, like, figure out what had happened. I'm going to read you a newspaper article from the 29th of October, uh, 1907, from the Mercury newspaper. And actually, the 29th of October is my birthday, so maybe it's a sign. (laughs) So it says, charge against Wood. And it's Press Association by Cable Copyright. London, October 29th. At the inquest of, at Camden Town, near London, yesterday, touching the death of Emily Dimmock, a verdict of willful murder was returned against Robert Thomas Wood. A previous cable message stated that the Scotland Yard detectives had taken an extraordinary step in their endeavour to unravel the mystery surrounding the murder of a woman named Emily Dimmock, alias Shaw. Where'd that come from? <laughs> the woman was de- <laughs> the woman was found murdered in her bed at Camden Town, a suburb of London, on September 11th. The police made every effort to trace the murderer, but they were obliged at length to admit that they were baffled and that there was nothing whatever in the shape of a clue to the identity of the murderer. This is where it gets interesting. At this point, a clairvoyant came on the scene <laughs> and offered her assistance. As one does. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. As a last resource, the detective accepted her offer. The clairvoyant lay on the bed where the murder was committed and was thrown into a trance. While in this state, she startled the onlookers by vividly recounting every detail of the crime. Finally, she exclaimed that she saw in her trance the murderer on a vessel traveling to Melbourne. Apparently, the clairvoyant's vision was misleading. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Not too surprised there. So in the trial, three months after the murder took place, Robert Wood gained favor with the jury due to his charm and boyish looks. Although someone said that he had like a sunken face. I know. Yeah, and blotchy skin. I know, but apparently he had boyish looks. Um, His employers even offered up to a thousand pounds to his defense. They were able to hire a lawyer by the name of Edward Marshall Hall, who was one of London's greatest defense attorneys in the early 20th century. He knew what to say, to whom, and how to say it. He also gained public sympathy through his artistic talents, drawing himself in prison, which was then printed by the press. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any of these pictures? Well, I'll I'll post them on our okay. Instagram. Yeah, that should Whoa. definitely be a post. Artist <laughs> photos. I know. Um, nobody thought that the suspicious nature surrounding his circumstances had anything to do with the murder, despite the fact that the defense brought up the fact that he tried multiple times to change his story and alibi. Who's this jury? I know. Who they are sound, they? I mean, they're like, they oh, he can draw. He's innocent. They don't really understand the point of being on the jury. Oh my God, I know. Emily Dimmick was also seen as a quote unquote fallen woman course and a victim of her own bad judgment and lifestyle so it was basically her fault that she was killed always blame the women um, always um when questioned ruby young became ill-liked and compared to judas 
for offering up false accusations and would put Robert Wood's reputation at stake in exchange for the £100 reward, which I might add was never paid. So she never got paid the £100 that she was promised, of course. It's it's one of those things that if it's a prostitute, it's quite easy to cheat her out of anything by just saying she doesn't have a good reputation. Yeah, so she never tried to actually claim the money. That's so sad. I know. Edward Marshall Hall was able to convince the jury that Robert Wood's confusing alibis were more to do with the fact that he did not want to be associated with a prostitute, and not because he had committed the crime, and also that he had zero motive for killing her. Before the final verdict, the judge, Justice Grantham, stated, Strong as the suspicion in this case undoubtedly is, I do not think that the prosecution has brought the case home near enough to the deceased. So with this, the jury, after discussing for 15 minutes, found Robert Wood to be not guilty, and he was released to a crowd of 10,000 people supporting him. Apparently, Ruby Young had to be escorted out of the courtroom for her own safety. Wow. I know. That's awful. I know. It's unknown what happened to Robert Wood afterwards, but unsurprisingly, he must have led a quiet life after the court case and slipped away into obscurity. Edward Marshall Hall is said to have believed at the time of the trial that Robert Wood was innocent, but upon reflection in the case in later years, was not sure if he still believed it, which is extremely helpful. So the case was never solved, but there are, of course, speculations as to what happened. Bertram was one of the suspects, lying about being away the evening before and murdering his wife instead due to her life of sin. Of course, we can bring Walter Sickert into this as well, who, because of Patricia Cornwell's theory, is one of the Ripper suspects, as he was living in and around Camden, cohorting with prostitutes, and was an artist, and um, he knew a lot of music hall performers as well, and even painted a series called The Camden Town Murders, inspired by these events. So I would like to read, of course, um, I love quotes, um, one more quote from the Daily Telegraph on the 20th of September, 1907. So let's see if I can actually read this one. Um, Yeah, I should be fine. Mr. Justice Grantham, in summing up favorably to the accused, emphasized that the evidence was entirely circumstantial. The trial was one of the most remarkable criminal trials in England. Certainly, it was the most remarkable in its time. There was no direct evidence against Wood. Accused led a double life. He was untruthful and endeavored to get others to lie for him, and he lied throughout. His conduct giving point to such evidence as there was against him. The jury was absent 15 minutes and returned the verdict stated above. Newspapers are agreed on the utterly squalid aspects of the Camden Town murder case. Interest chiefly centered in the method of detecting criminals, and the general opinion is that the prosecution in this instance was based on doubtful identification. There was no suggestion of a motive for the murder. The Daily Telegraph declares that the prosecution offered practically no evidence which was not either adequately rebutted or which did not emanate from people whose character was open to grave reproach. Another unsolved mystery is added to London's disquietingly long list. And that is the Camden Town murder. Wow. That is... I just... Wow. I know. How do you just not, like, you know... <laughs> I just don't understand that. No, I know. But I don't understand that? how, like, the jury was presented with, like, all of this. And then, like, 
Ruby Young who recognized his handwriting. Well, I wonder if it's also because when we think of a jury now, mm-hmm. obviously there's men and women on the jury and they're kind of from all different classes. And, yeah, and they have and to be pre-screened. Exactly. And, and yeah. back then it would have would have just been men, wouldn't it? Yeah, and I wonder if it was also people that maybe were just interested in the case or, like, wanted to be on a jury so that they... Could have something to do with it. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. anyway... So, obviously, he's number one suspect, but, like, Walter Sickert comes into it a lot, too, because he just, he was one of those people that was just kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or, I mean, the right place at the right time, because he ended up knowing tons of, like, music hall people and lived in Camden at the right time. Yeah. But, anyway, believe what you will. Interesting, interesting story, though. Yeah. Right. So, today, I'm going to talk about animals. Um animal trials actually by which I literally mean animals being put on trial Mm -hmm. so this practice went on for hundreds of years with the earliest record describing the trial of a pig in 1266 in the French town of Fontenay aux Roses Rose (laughs) (laughs) my French is atrocious so forgive my (laughs) pronunciation I have more reason to be embarrassed about my French because in Canada French is your second language and my French is absolutely awful. But are you from French Canada? No, I mean, like, I'm close enough to French oh. Canada that I should know. <laughs> my French used to be really good, and then I just, I discovered being self-conscious, and that was the end of that. Well, it happens. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, so today, most judicial systems acknowledge the fact that animals are unable to rationalize their actions in the way that human beings can, <laughs> and therefore lack a moral agency, making it impossible to be tried under a court of law. Um, notice I said most, yeah. not all. <laughs> so during my research into this, I, I came across this modern day case. Um, no. in two, yes, in 2008, a wild Macedonian bear stole honey from a beekeeper's hives. The beekeeper sued the bear and brought him to court. Um, obviously the bear did not make an appearance and this became a year long case what? of the beekeeper versus the bear. The court found the bear guilty of theft and property damage <laughs> and subsequently fined him 140,000 dinars, which translates to about 1,968 pounds or $2,568. So who pays that out? Well, because the bear had no owner and it was a protected species, the state was forced to pay oh. the beekeeper in order to compensate him for the hives that were lost. Oh my god! Yeah. So, I mean, the beekeeper was quite happy about it. Yeah, but, of course. Um, the bear is still on the run. The bear is still on the run. No one's ever seen a bear. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, this is a special case because it took place in the modern era, whereas most animal trials took place during the medieval and early modern era. And um, they could be tried in either a crown court or an ecclesiastical court, which is a church court. And the ecclesiastical court was much more common. Um, and especially in the ecclesiastical court, they were often given a lawyer, though sadly they still didn't really win their cases that often. Um, and one case that I was reading about that was actually successful occurred in 1750 in which a female donkey was accused of bestiality after the donkey and a man were seen together. 
<laughs> Once again, the woman is blamed. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but in this case, oh several people came forward and testified on behalf of the donkey, stating that they had never seen her misbehave previously, nor had they seen her demonstrate any lewdness prior to this case. I cannot believe that's real. That is real. So the donkey was acquitted. Um, and I hope that she lived a very long and happy life. Um, the man, however, was burned at the stake, so... Oh, okay. Not so lucky. I mean, um, but yeah, good on him. Yeah, I mean, at least the donkey was, you know, went free though. So, um, the story that I want to talk about took place in the small town of Altun, which is located about 160 miles south of Paris, um, which is actually was founded during the reign of the very first Roman Emperor Augustus. So, if you ever want to go on holiday in France and see some ancient Roman ruins. That's you where can, to go. Yeah, you could go to Altoon. In 1508, the people of Altoon were furious. They had reached a breaking point with the rats, who had feloniously eaten up and wantonly destroyed the barley crop of the province. <laughs> so according to, and this is absolutely a fascinating book by Edward P. Evans, um, it's called Criminal Punishment and Capital Prosecution of Animals, where most of this research came from. Rats were quite often the guilty party during the early modern era. They were sent friendly letters of advice to quit any house where their presence was deemed, quote-unquote, undesirable. So every house. Yeah, um, basically. <laughs> Which is exactly what happened to the rats of Altoon. So complaints were brought to the magistrate, who sent them on to the vicar, prompting the vicar to send out a summons to the rats. And as I mentioned before, ecclesiastical courts generally appointed a lawyer to those who did not have one. So for this court case, they were assigned a young man named Bartholomew Chazenay. The summons was posted to the parish church, decreeing that they were to appear before the court on the appointed day and time to answer for their crimes. Obviously, no rats were seen anywhere <laughs> near the courthouse, um, forcing Chazenay to really earn his title of defense lawyer. First, he argued that they don't all live in the same place, because obviously they're not pack animals. Therefore, it would be irresponsible and insufficient for only one summons to go out. Instead, they would have to be summoned individually for oh this to be a completely legal process. Apparently, he made a good enough case because a few days later, several summons were posted in all of the <laughs> neighboring parishes that stated the new date and time that the rats would need to appear in court. And I do wonder if they, if they nailed them to the door at eye yeah. level or if they put them <laughs> at the ground I mean if they're imagine though out, you know? imagine being like a defense lawyer and just being like listen I've got to defend some rats yeah and he was really some young at the rats. time too so oh this is kind of the beginning of his uh, in, illustrious career I mean he did go on and have a really illustrious career so um yeah it's it's quite interesting his life story so yeah so they sent out more summons to all the neighboring parishes and once again that day and time came and the rats obviously didn't show up again. So while it wasn't looking too good for them, Chazenay contended that due to the unpaved, unlit pathway which led to the courthouse, there was no way they would be able to make it safely to the trial. <laughs> Added in were the ever-present dangers from cats, dogs, and humans, making it near impossible for the rats to feel capable of making an appearance. 
He went on to state that if the court did not guarantee the safety of his clients, then they were under no obligation to show up and defend themselves from the charge. Furthermore, there would be no change of venue to try the rats, since regardless of where they went, they would still be in peril from humans and animals. Since 16th century French law stated, as it still does today, that if the accused could not be guaranteed personal safety, then they may be excused from the charge that they were answering in court. While the record which held the final decision by the court has been lost, it is widely accepted now that the rats were in fact acquitted of all charges. Chazenet went on to make quite the name for himself in his very illustrious career, <laughs> and is still famous today for his treatises that were responsible for the forming for forming the foundation of the Napoleonic Code, which is actually what? still the basis of modern day French law. What? Yeah. And, um, and he all started, he started with, like, rats. Yeah, and supposedly he went on to defend um, other animals after the rats. Um, unfortunately, none of these records have been found in the main archives, and if they're out there, they haven't been seen in hundreds of years by anyone who cared to share. So, yeah. Check your attic. It's, I mean, we're going to have to, yeah, go take a trip to France and dig through those I archives. Mean, <laughs> I'm into it. Let's do it. So, oh, my God. Yeah quite interesting but it was one of those things that I never really realized the extent to which animals were tried in the medieval period and quite often executed Um, like the pig that I was talking about in 1266 the the pig was accused of eating a baby I feel like I've okay probably heard of it yeah Yeah. Um, and the pig was arrested and put into jail for, I think it was four days, um, and then went on trial, and yeah, was found guilty, and they they executed the pig, which is really sad. So, how did they kill it? Just like as they, they would a normal pig. I don't remember. Um, oh my god! But there are definitely some where they have, like they hanged. Um, some animals, like, they hanged, or, yeah, I guess they behead them. I don't know. I wasn't, so <laughs> I wasn't looking too much into it, um, because it was really sad. But, yeah. And I think it's just, people used to have, when you think about it, it's strange, because people used to have such a different relationship to animals, because they would literally, oh, yeah. basically live with their livestock. Yeah, but, yeah, they'd live with their livestock, but then also, it wasn't, well, you, you mentioned it too like it wasn't the sort of thing where people would think that animals didn't have a a similar thought process in a way that there was there was a reason that say the pig the pig (laughs) killed the baby it's like it didn't go eat my baby but like you know what I mean (laughs) you know what I mean it's like oh the pig killed the baby on purpose it's just so yeah and it's one of those also it's so different now because obviously you wouldn't leave your baby around a pig no, exactly. You would never so leave your baby around like any both, animals. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's humans. Well, obviously, humans are the fault of everything. Except when they acquitted the donkey. Yeah, that was the there's one that, thing that they as well. Right. God. But. Yeah, it's almost in a way like you see up until basically the Victorian period where people thought that, that children were basically little adults and had like the same sort of formation in terms of thoughts and thought process and yeah and let them run around a lot more and a lot more freely and there wasn't so much of like trying to like an actual childhood yeah exactly so yeah 
Not that children and animals are the same in any sort of way. <laughs> They're exactly the same. And there's a lot more. Tra- so, yeah, if, um, if anybody would like to get this book, it's available on Amazon. Cool. Um, and it's full of interesting, weird stories like that. So That's the sort of stuff that we're here for. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Cool. Well, is there anything else you want to say? I mean, obviously, um, this is the first episode, so we're still getting used to everything. Yeah, no, um, um, that was about it. Yeah. yeah, well, I guess on that note, too, because it is our first episode, we do ask people that, you know, obviously, please share this with your friends if you think that you've got any people that would be interested in it. And obviously, as with every podcast, please do rate, review, and subscribe. Um, we're on SoundCloud and on iTunes and I'm looking into other options on how to share things. If anyone is a podcast guru and knows how to share these things <laughs> properly, <laughs> let me know. But I am a mere pleb. Well. <laughs> you know, we all can't be perfect. Burr? Burr perfect? Burr perfect. Be perfect. So just in case you didn't catch our intro, this is a bi-weekly history podcast where we'll be bringing you tales we've come across in our own personal research and other work. So if you'd like to follow us, you can find us on Twitter with the handle Tales Archives and Instagram at Tales from the Archives, links in the show notes. And if you'd like to send us an email about anything you want to hear about, um, you can email us at talesfromthearchivespod at gmail.com. Yeah, so if you've got any ideas about what you would like us to research or what you what you want to hear us talk about send us a link and if you have any fun like weird stories or fun facts that you want us to share please do i guess that's it for now until until next time time. when we share more tales from the archives (laughs) (laughs) bye Bye.